Good afternoon, friends. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. For those of you I haven't met, my name is Rowan Kemp. I'm the staff team leader here at the EU. Will you join me as we pray and ask God to speak to us this lunchtime through his word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the wonderful things that you have done for us, for giving us life and breath, for giving us this opportunity here today. We pray now, Lord, that as we humble ourselves before you in your word, that you might teach us the truth, so we might know you better and love you more, and be lights in this world for the sake of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You've got an outline there in front of you. It'd be great if you could take out a Bible and open it up. We're looking today at John chapters 13 and 14. And you might like to take some notes as we go along to help you concentrate. Let's start with a question. Was Jesus a delusional egomaniac or merely an offensive religious bigot? Delusional egomaniac or just an offensive religious bigot? After all, consider what he says in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one gets to God except through him. Surely this guy had tickets on himself. He must be puffed up with his own importance. Or else he shows absolutely no respect for the millions and millions of sincere people of other faiths. How is that tolerant? How is that loving? What's the story? Was he a delusional egomaniac? Or was he a religious bigot? Christians of all sorts of persuasions want to say Jesus is neither. But they do that in some very different ways. For example, Marcus Borg, who is what we might like to call a theological liberal, he's a biblical scholar, but of a theologically liberal persuasion. This is some of what he says in his own words. He says, Let me put my misgiving in extreme and provocative form. If you think you are the light of the world, you're not. That is, perceiving oneself in such grand terms is a fairly good indicator that you're off base. The parallel statement, of course, is if you think you are the Messiah, you're not. I'm not proposing this as a law of the universe. Perhaps you can think you are the Messiah and really be the Messiah, but thinking that Jesus thought of himself in such grand terms raises serious questions about the mental health of Jesus. I don't think spirit persons like Jesus have an exalted perception of themselves. That is, Professor Borg says that Jesus would have to have been literally out of his mind to claim such exalted truths for himself. So his conclusion is that Jesus didn't say any such thing. You say, well, how come it's in my Bible? Well, Professor Ball goes on to say that it was invented by the early Christian community. But even if you granted him that, which I'm not suggesting we do, 
it still sounds like a pretty offensive thing to claim, doesn't it, for those early Christians, that Jesus is the only way to God. Well, that's not a problem either, according to Professor Borg. He mentions this very verse with which we've started today, John 14, 6, and says that it and verses like it, and I quote here, these need not be understood to mean that Jesus or Christianity is the only way of salvation. Instead, we might understand them and similar Christian statements about Jesus being the only way as reflecting the joy of having found one's salvation through Jesus and the intensity of Christian devotion to Jesus. They should be understood as exclamations, not doctrines, and as the poetry of devotion and the hyperbole of the heart. What's he saying? He's saying to acclaim Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, even to say that no one comes to the Father except through him, that's not to be taken literally. It's hyperbole. It's an exclamation of joy and devotion that we've found our salvation as Christians in him. So according to Marcus Borg, it's not actually saying anything about the truth or value of other religious faiths. So one final quotation. He says, The claim that Jesus is the only way does mean that for us as Christians, Jesus is the decisive revelation of God. Indeed, I see this as the defining characteristic that makes us Christian rather than something else. If we found the decisive revelation of God in the Torah or the Quran, then we will be Jews or Muslims. But to be Christian is to affirm here in Jesus, I see more clearly than anywhere else what God is like. So he concludes, the affirmation can be made with one's whole heart while still affirming that God is also known in other traditions. So what he's saying is that Jesus is the only way for us as Christians. It's not actually making any comment about Jews or Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims. So you can see how he's dealt with this extraordinary statement on Jesus' lips in John 14:6. First he says, Jesus couldn't have actually said any such thing himself. It was invented by the early Christian community. And second... It's only the hyperbole of devotion speaking about the subjective Christian experience of finding salvation in Christ. It's not actually saying anything about the truth or otherwise of other faiths. Well, is that the answer? Is that how we rescue, supposedly, Jesus from being either a delusional egomaniac or an offensive religious bigot? I want to suggest a different approach. I want to suggest an approach that I think respects the historicity of the account that we have here in front of us in John's Gospel. It's an approach, I hope, that does not do violence to the text. And it's an approach that's going to mean we're going to have to probe more deeply into the text itself and grasp what was the context into which Jesus spoke these words. So we're going to do two things today. First of all, we're going to look at what Jesus says and seek to understand what he meant by what he said. And secondly, we're going to try and look at the context in which he said it and see if that changes the way we're to understand what he says. So first of all, the heading there on your outline, Jesus and the way. What is Jesus saying in this verse? I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Well, I think there's three points here to note. First is this. Jesus is the 
way, capital W-A-Y, he is the way to the Father. We come to God the Father through him. It's like saying he secures the route, he opens the path, he's the trailblazer. That's the first thing. Second thing is that Jesus is saying he is the exclusive way to the Father. Certainly that appears to be what he's claiming for himself, at least on the surface. He is, he says, the truth of God, the one who truly reveals what the Father is like. You could go to John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. It's God, the only Son, who's close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So Jesus is the truth of God, the revelation of God. But Jesus is also the life from God. He's the one whom the Father has given life and then given that the Son may pour out that life to others. So, for instance, John chapter 5, verse 26. John 5, 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, Jesus says, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So here you've got Jesus being the truth about God and being the life from God. That's why he's the way, the only way to the Father as the truth and the life. And I'd argue that there are enough other verses in John's Gospel, let alone the rest of the New Testament, to say that that is what Jesus means, that he is the only way to God. So, for, for instance, some of the verses we've already looked at in our sort of wander through John's Gospel this year. Back in John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. Or in the same chapter, verses 17 and 18 of John 3, Jesus says, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, the point to note is the testimony here is not only positive in the way that Marcus Borg seems to frame it. It's not just the hyperbole of joy and devotion. There's a real negative element here. Those who do not believe and obey the Son, they must endure God's wrath. They're condemned. They're not just free to choose any other supposedly equally as valid path. Now, within the context of John's Gospel, this has a particular relevance for non-Christian Jews. Jews believed that they already had a sufficient relationship with Jesus God. But what Jesus was shockingly saying is that you can't have your God, you can't have Yahweh, the only God who really is God, you can't have him without me. Because no one comes to the Father except through me. So it's not that Jesus is setting up an alternative religion to the Jews. He wasn't advocating a different God. He's saying, I'm the fulfilment of the Jewish faith. I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. I'm the one in whom the Jewish faith reaches its climax. So Jesus' point, at least to the Jews, was you can't bypass me 
in your a relationship to your God. You can't legitimately stop short of me and still have a relationship with your God. Indeed, if you cut me out, then you're not in any right relationship with God the Father. You cease to be his legitimate children. And you can follow that up more in John chapter 8. Now, if Jesus is saying that to the Jews who did know the one true God, they had his revelation of himself in the prophets in the Old Testament, if he's saying that to them, do you think it would also apply to all the other religions of the world? How much more so do they need to put away their false gods and turn to the true God and come to him through faith in his son Jesus? So that's the second point, that Jesus is exclusively the way to the Father. Third point here is that Jesus himself is the way. See, it's not that Jesus just opens up the path to the Father and then stands back and says, there you are guys, up you go. He's not just the trailblazer, if you like. No, it's actually adherence to him that is the way, that is the path. Let me explain what I mean. If you want to get to the Father, you need to actually stick to Jesus by faith, by obedience. That's how you travel along this way, by clinging to Jesus. So in an attempt to try to continue the analogy, Jesus, if you like, is the trailblazer, but he's the trailblazer who actually takes you along with him. Doesn't just open up the path and let you wander your own way there. This is not a spiritual self-help system. It's not a series of spiritual exercises by which you can reach the Father. No, the way to the Father is in Jesus. It's with Jesus, attached to him by faith and obedience. That's why there's this funny little bit in the passage or strange little bit in the passage where even though the disciples in these chapters, they don't understand precisely where Jesus is going, yet Jesus can say, you still know how to get there. Have a look what I mean here, verses 4 to 6 of chapter 14. The end of verse 4 there, Jesus says to his disciples, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas says to him, rather perplexedly I guess, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? You've got to know the destination to know how to get there. But Jesus replies to him, I am the way. That is, if you know me, you do know the way, even if you're not quite sure exactly where it's going to get you. Because you know me, you have faith in me, you're obedient to me, to my word. And yet it's reflected elsewhere in John's Gospel as well. So positively, in somewhere like John 12, 44, Jesus cries aloud, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That is belief in Jesus, to believe in him is to believe in the Father. He himself is the way to this relationship with the Father. And the opposite's true too. In John 15, 23, Jesus says, whoever hates me, hates my father also. So you can't not have Jesus if you want to have the father. So Jesus himself is the way to the father. If you like, the response you make to Jesus, whether it's faith, obedience and trust, or whether it's hatred and rejection, that response that you make to Jesus is your path selection. Uh, I love bushwalking in the Blue Mountains. 
Uh, I don't get to do it very often, but one of the joys of my life at the moment is that our eldest child, our son, uh, is of an age now where he and I can realistically explore some of the fantastic bushwalking trails in the Blue Mountains. Uh, in January this year, we were exploring around Govett's Leap, and we came to a point where several different paths around Govett's Leap all intersect, and there was a board there that pointed out the names of the different paths. And one of the fascinating things is that you can follow different paths that eventually may get you to the same destination. And we stood there before this board and it pointed out all the different, different paths. And interestingly, one of the paths, uh, it was named, it sort of started off, but, but then it was just blocked off. And the reason was it was blocked off was because if you went down that path, you would die, which was a good reason to block it off, really. Uh, it was because that path sort of just, there'd been a rock fall and it just sort of went over a cliff, like... You would plunge to your death if you went down that path. You know, that path, it just as you reflect on it, it wasn't going to get you to the goal. In fact, it would end in your death, your own personal destruction. That is something like the situation we all face. I want you to imagine that there's a signboard in front of all of us and the paths had different names, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, atheism, the religion of my own imagination. They're all there on the board in front of you and all claim in some sense to get to the same destination, whatever, however you might like to conceive of that, uh, fulfilment of your own personal purpose or relationship with the divine. Well, what Jesus is proclaiming here is that only one of the paths actually gets there. Only one of these paths actually ends up in a real relationship with God the Father. All the other paths not only fail to get there, but they end in death and destruction. What's more, there is a guide standing alongside the board. It's Jesus himself. And he offers to take you on the path to get to the destination. He says, I'll take you there. Attach yourself to me. Follow me in faith and obedience because I'm the way and no one will get to the Father except through me. Move along then on the outline there to the next heading, Jesus and his Father. Because it's not just that Jesus is the trailblazer. In this passage, it's not even that he's just the guide who'll get you there. It's actually more profound than that. What Jesus, I think, goes on to say here is that he himself is the destination. Have a look at Philip's question here in John chapter 14 in verse 8. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. What was Philip asking for? I wonder if he's got in mind Exodus chapters 33 and 34 where Moses says to the Lord, he says, show me your glory and the Lord does indeed have his glory, his goodness pass in front of Moses. Is Philip asking Jesus for that sort of experience? Show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. It's a pretty understandable question at one level because 
maybe you yourself or certainly we probably know people who've asked that question, if only God would show himself, then I'd believe. And I wonder if that's what Philip's asking for. But notice Jesus' answer. Verse 9 to 11 there. Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Jesus is saying something here that's astounding. He's not just another path up the mountain. He's not even the only path up the mountain. He's not even the guide who can take you up the mountain. He is the mountain. When you come to Jesus, you've got there. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to Philip? He doesn't say, look, Philip, just trust in me a bit longer. Follow along, then one day you'll get to see the Father. No, he says, Philip, open your eyes, mate. Right here in front of you, right now. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. My works are the Father's words. Sorry, my words are the Father's works. I think what we see here is this incredibly close relation of the Father and the Son. And next week we'll see, as we move into 15 and 16, the Spirit as well. There is an incredible unity here between the Father and the Son, not just of will, not just in purpose or action like some perfect coalition. This is a genuine unity of being. Now, obviously, there's a distinction here too. So we know that the Son, Jesus, has come from the Father and now he's telling us he's going back to the Father. There's distinction between Son and Father. You can't just fully equate the two and collapse them into each other. But the focus here is on grasping the implications of the unity I and the Father are one, says Jesus. When you've come to Jesus, you've arrived. So the Apostle Paul can say in Colossians, in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of God dwelt bodily. And John made the same sort of point in his own way in chapter 1, when he talked about the Word, the Word who was with God, distinction, the Word who was God, inseparable. The word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us as Jesus the Christ. Now, depending on your own faith position with respect to Jesus, you might be saying at this point, well, look, I thought it was a bit full on when Jesus was there claiming to be the only track up the mountain to God. But now to claim to be God, to be the mountain himself, that's really sort of having a pretty big head about it. That's pretty full on. And many scholars have taken that same sort of reaction and route. They've dismissed out of hand that Jesus could possibly have said or meant anything as exalted, as extreme as that. Surely it must have just been wishful thinking on the part of Jesus' followers to make it all up. I just want to stop for a moment and think, why might people say such things? Why might they have that reaction, that interpretation of what Jesus is saying? If I can be so bold as to try to imagine why people might say that at this point. I think it's because people might say, look, 
It's just not possible that someone could make a claim like that to be God and for that actually to be true. Oh, why is that? Well, because we just don't think that God, with who God is, would do something like that, would become a human being. That's way too weird. That's way too supernatural, too interventionist to fit our conception of what God is like. See, we have these preconceived ideas of who God is, what he is like, and what he would possibly do. And it's through that grid, the preconceived notion of God, that we then read the text. And we, through that preconceived notion, we judge the text, rather than letting the text, God in his word, form our conceptions of who God is and what he might do. See, I just want to ask, who are we to put a limit on God? He doesn't need to fit into my or your categories. He doesn't have to be constrained by our logic or rational system. He doesn't have to fit with your expectations, doesn't have to fit with our anything. Here's a radical thought, frankly. God, the true God, can do as he pleases. So that's certainly the picture we get from the scriptures, that God can do whatever he likes. Psalm 135, verse 6. So that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is the eternal word, the word who was with God, distinct, but with God, but was God, not separate, that he came in flesh amongst us. It is not before the fact ruled out of court as impossible. Look what Jesus himself says in verse 11. He says that my, the miraculous signs that I've done, they point to my identity. Here I am doing the Father's works. In this uh, movement through John chapter 14, we then come to a little section, three verses, verses 12 to 14, that seem a little bit unusual, especially at first, and it's worth just taking a moment to work through them. Notice what it says there, verses 12 to 14. Jesus continues, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Those who believe in Jesus will do Jesus' works, in fact, will do greater works. And if you ask anything in Jesus' name, it'll be done for you. It's said twice there, repeated, so you get the point. I think to actually understand what Jesus is saying and promising here, we need to jump out and grasp at this point the wider context in which this conversation is taking place. Chapters 13 and 14 all occur on one night. One night. And what is Jesus saying to them? If you go back to chapter 13, verse 33, you can see that Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He's been with them three years and he's right at the point of leaving them. And so what he's doing is he's giving comfort and instructions to his disciples about what it's going to be like when he goes. And these three verses fall into that category. In particular... What he's saying is there will be a continuation, even a surpassing of my works by you guys who believe in me. And why will that be? It will be because I'm going to the Father. 
What are these greater works that they might do? It's, I think it's just unlikely that it means more impressive works. I mean, Jesus had raised Lazarus, who'd been dead in the grave for four days, and called him out with a word. I think it's unlikely Jesus is saying, you'll do more radical stuff than that. I think it's also probably unlikely Jesus is just saying, you guys will do more works than I, I, I've been able to do in just three years. There's more of you, you'll do more. That seems a little bit trite. And how does that exactly fit with his stuff about prayer here? I think what he means by saying greater works, he means greater in the sense that they will take place in a greater era. See, the works that they and we will do occur on the other side of Jesus' glorification, his death, resurrection and ascension that we saw last week. These are works that will occur in the greater age of the Spirit, in the age of the inaugurated kingdom. You might like to chase up here Matthew 11 where Jesus says something similar. He says, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that there was. And he says the very least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why is that? Are we more important somehow than John the Baptist? No, it's because we are in the age of the inaugurated kingdom. We're in the age of the spirit, the greater age. Hence, I think he means greater in the sense that the signs, the works that will be done will be signs of this greater inaugurated age of the kingdom and spirit. But what are the works themselves? Jesus speaks of those believing in him who will do the same works he's done. Should you expect next time you go to a 21st and they run out of drink, should you just say, look, just bring me a couple of jugs of water and bingo, you know, we'll have some more wine. It'll be good, good stuff too. Or when you run out of food, should you expect to sort of just to bring me a few fish and a few rolls and man, I've got enough to feed the whole university. Is that what you should expect to do? Isn't that what Jesus says? How do we understand what he's saying? Well, I think there's a strong sense in these three verses that those who believe in Jesus are going to carry on his work because he's now going to the Father. So Jesus' mission, which is his Father's mission, is going to continue on and it's going to continue on through his disciples. But notice, Jesus himself remains the one in control of his mission, his father's mission. Because as we ask for things in his name, he grants them. We don't now say, okay, I'm continuing on the work now. I've decided what needs to happen right now is this person needs to be miraculously healed. And I've decided what needs to happen is that I'm going to call down the spirit and to do these things. We're not in control like that. Whose mission is this? It's Jesus' mission. His work continues through us. And so we ask for him to work through us, continuing his work, we ask in his name. That is, we ask for things, I think, submitting to his will that he might be glorified and continue his Father's work. All the power comes through Jesus answering these prayers. Jesus' name here isn't a magic spell. It's not some sort of incantation that's the Christian equivalent of sort of endless wish fulfilment. As long as I say, I ask this in Jesus' name, that you'll get whatever you want. That's just, that's superstitious. No, what this is, this is a continuation of Jesus' own mission 
in his power, according to his will, exercised through his disciples. I think what this means for you and me is that we should pray up big. There's an encouragement here, a real encouragement, to pray up big that Jesus would fulfil his mission as he wills through us. But it is his mission according to his will. I think uh, you can follow this theme through the next couple of chapters. I'll give you some verses you might like to look up. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 7. uh, Chapter 15, verse 17. And also chapter 16, 23 to 27. I think are all of a piece on this. Well, let's now move to Jesus and the disciples. Jesus and the disciples. Anyone here study archaeology? There must be a few. We're in the hand straight up. Come on, be proud. Archaeology, what a glorious science that is. You know, to sit in the hot desert dust, to sit in the sort of wet ruins and just scrape, 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 but then a little bit of brushwork, some more scraping and scraping and scraping. What a glorious science archaeology is. And at the end of your, you know, hard work, you might uncover a 19th century bedpan. You know, it would be... Okay, that's a little bit facetious. We love archaeologists and you should excuse my complete ignorance of the science. But I have learnt one true thing about archaeology. One true thing about archaeological method. Now, credit where credit's due. Uh, I learnt it from my brother who trained here as an archaeologist. He did honours in archaeology uh, and he's been on digs around the world and uh, he tells me this is fair income. This is fair income method for archaeologists, professionals. Apparently what happens is sometimes when you're at a dig, now that's a technical archaeological jargon for hole in the ground, (laughs) when you're at a dig, it's quite difficult sometimes to work out exactly how the different things that you're uncovering fit together. You don't know, have I gone down through too many chronological layers or how does this relate to that in this one sort of hole that I've created? And so professional archaeologists have a very sophisticated technique for resolving this confusion. What you do is this, and I thought I'd, I'd model this for you, okay? As my brother modelled it for me. I don't know why you need to adopt this particular pose, but apparently this is why you do it. And then you do this. Apparently, you turn around and look under your bottom through your legs. Apparently, this is the fed. I said to him, come on, mate, that's just a joke. What do they teach you that in honours? No. <laughs> he, he says, no, no, this is for real. He said, there, there he was in the United Arab Emirates standing there at a dig that he was supervising and there he is looking through his legs to try and work out how it all fits together. Now, why am I sharing with you this most fascinating piece of information? Um, because sometimes what it does doing that is it just it gives you a fresh perspective on things and suddenly you see everything new because you're looking at it sort of backwards. That's why it apparently works. So what I want to say is we've been trying to explore what does Jesus mean when he says, no one comes to the Father but by me, by me. And we, we've seen he really means that. No one will come to God except through him. And you might be left with that going, well, that really does make him sound, uh, you know, even if he's not egotistical, if it's really the truth, it still sounds pretty bigoted, 
pretty offensive. I want to say to you, to really understand why it's not the case, we need to take a backwards look at these chapters. So I want to move very briefly just back to the beginning of chapter 14 and then the beginning of chapter 13 and see if that then casts a different light onto what Jesus is saying there in John 14.6. So first of all, let's just look here at uh, the first couple of verses out of John 14. Remember, Jesus had just told them that he's about to leave and they're pretty stressed about that. So he says, 14 verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And then he says where he's going and why. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. See, first, uh, Jesus says here that he's going to his father's house to prepare a place for his disciples and that one day he'll return to take them to be with him there. There's two comforting promises here, two promises you might like to get down. First of all, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for all who have faith in him. I don't think this means that you need to take the imagery literally that the age to come somehow is sort of life in one big mansion of God with many rooms or separate sort of condos. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the future reality that Jesus is talking about is uh, talked about with much more cosmic language, the destruction of the elements by fire, the new creation of a new heaven and a new earth. I don't think we're to think literally that Jesus is like some heavenly Jamie Drury doing some heavenly renovation rescue, preparing a place just for you. You know, maybe on a budget. No, the teaching, what is the teaching in this book of John about how Jesus will prepare a place for his followers in the age to come? How does he do it? He does it through his glorification. He prepares a place for them through his death and resurrection and ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit. That's how he prepares a place for them. So when he says, I have to go to prepare a place for you, he's not saying, I have to go and then by his very going, going to death and resurrection, that is how he's preparing the place. He has to leave them. And the point I want to make here is that he is doing it for their sakes, isn't he? He's going away for their sake. He's doing it out of love to prepare a place for them. So he's not saying, I'm the only way out of arrogance. Like, I've got the only train that's really running, so you better hop on it and get on board. No, out of love, he's saying he's opening the only way to the Father. And apart from him, apart, with, apart from fellowship with him, there is no fellowship with the Father. There's no eternal life, no forgiveness of sins. And we recognise that truth with tears. The second thing that he says here is that as certainly as he is leaving, he will return to take us to be with him. If he's already done in his going all the work of preparation, if he's prepared you a place in the Heavenly Father's family through his death and resurrection, then certainly he will return to, con to consummate that in your own experience when we are caught up with him in the age to come. Now, this idea that he's doing it for their sakes out of love and concern, that comes out even more strongly 
when you go right back to the beginning of chapter 13. And we'll finish with this. Beginning of chapter 13 is the beginning of this evening. Before they get into this conversation, this discourse, Jesus does something. What does he do? Well, we're told there in verse 2, it's the evening meal was being served and we learn that Jesus washes their feet. So the events are pretty simply told. The evening meal is being served, verse 2. Jesus takes off his outer clothes in verse 4 and dons the outfit of a slave, wraps a towel around his waist. And then he begins to wash and dry the disciples' feet one after another. Now, presumably since Jesus got up from the meal in verse 4, the others are still all lying there. They're reclining, as was their way. You can see that from verses 23 to 25. Jesus works his way around the room, washing one set of dirty, stinky feet after the other, all the way around the room. And Simon Peter, it seems, is the only one who objects in verses 6 to 9, yet Jesus insists that he will do it. Why does Peter initially resist Jesus' attempt to wash his feet? Because to wash someone's feet was an incredibly demeaning thing to do. In the Jewish culture of the day, you wouldn't even ask your male Jewish slave to wash someone's feet. It was too demeaning a thing. And here's Jesus, as he says, the one that you call Lord and Teacher, Here's Jesus washing their feet. It's unthinkable. It's just not right at all. I think it's very hard for us actually to conjure up a contemporary equivalent. But Peter's reaction is entirely understandable. And Jesus himself understands what he's doing and its shock value. He does it to make a point, verses 12 to 16 of chapter 13. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So is that what Jesus is saying? We should all just go around washing each other's feet? No, that's not the point of what he's saying. The real point, it's not about the foot washing, it's about humble, loving service. Jesus' disciples are to follow his example in the way he humbly, graciously, lovingly served them. That's the way they're to serve one another. Jesus goes on to say later in 13, in verses 34 and 35, as I've loved you, you must love one another. That's the way Jesus' disciples are to be marked out in the world. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But as you keep looking backwards in this passage, you realise something about this foot washing. This foot washing, it's not about feet at all. It's actually pointing towards something else. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Where in the coming chapters, in the narrative to follow, in the events that are to follow, just in the next couple of days, where does Jesus show them the full extent of his love? Where does he love them to the end? In washing their feet? No, in his death for them. This foot washing, if you like, is a way of helping his disciples to understand what he's he's doing when he dies on the cross. 
And Jesus says to Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will. You'll be able to look back and understand why I'm doing this. In the way that I am going to wash your feet now, humbly, humble myself, that is what I'll be doing in my death, humbling myself to serve you. In the way I am lovingly caring for you all now, that is what I'm doing in my death. It's a way of helping us to understand, interpret what Jesus is about to do in his own death. And here's an observation. Jesus knew at this moment that it was Judas who was going to betray him. The rest of chapter 13 makes that clear. And Jesus washed Judas's feet just minutes, hours before Judas betrayed him. And he knew what was coming. Does that tell you something about the love of Jesus? That he would wash even his betrayer's feet in that humble way. That he would go to death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the world that rejects him. It tells you something about the love of Jesus. So I will find it very hard in the light of what goes on in this particular evening of Jesus' life with his disciples, I find it very hard to see when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I find it very hard to read that with arrogance on Jesus' lips because the whole evening is about Jesus' great love for the world, his love for the disciples even his love for those who hate and betray him. So I'll conclude with this thought. I think it's very easy for us Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a world that is so pluralistic, that is so relativistic, in a world which says political correctness rules, in a world that says tolerance means you must agree with what other people say, In a world such as that, it's very easy for us to pull back on the exclusive claim that Jesus makes. Now, we have to resist that temptation to pull back at every turn, friends, because that way lies darkness and death. To pull back from claiming that Jesus is the only way is not only to deny him, but to deny life and the way of life for others who are in darkness and are on paths that are leading to death and destruction. That's why we're committed to the EU's first object, to present students with the Christian gospel, to lead them to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not because we just think it's the best of a bunch of different religious valid options, not just because we think it's good to have a spiritual side to your life, but because we believe Jesus when he says, no one comes to the Father but by me. But finally... We don't present an arrogant Jesus. We present a humble, a loving, a Jesus who is committed to serve. And so we must not present him arrogantly. We present him humbly. We present him in love. We present him with a service attitude, with tears for those who are lost, with prayers that God might have mercy and save many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might have mercy on those who are lost, who do not know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who are not in a right relationship with you, their Heavenly Father, 
a relationship of faith and trust and obedience. We pray that you might have mercy on many, on our friends, on our family, that you might do it for your own glory and for their salvation and to the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name and in the power of your spirit. Amen.